Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Colin Hunter is a special guest on today's show. He's an author of Be More Wrong, a mentor, entrepreneur and coach. He's also the CEO of Potential Squared. But before we get a chance to speak with Colin, it's a Leadership Hacker News. In the news today, we explored the world's top female-friendly companies of 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken an especially heavy toll on women around the world. It's estimated more than 64 million women around the world lost their jobs, with at least 800 billion in earnings lost last year in US dollars alone. And as a result, the time it will take to close the global gender pay gap has increased from 99 years to 135 years, according to the World Economic Forum. And these issues are achingly familiar. Inadequate childcare, managing work-home stress, lack of opportunities, and in many cases, COVID merely amplified the burden to the point where many women just left their jobs. Forbes magazine recently teamed up with market research company Statista to help identify companies leading the way when it comes to try and support women inside and outside their workforces with an inaugural ranking of the world's top female-friendly companies. So which company clinched the number one spot? Well, CEO Michelle Buck became the first woman to leave the chocolatier it's 127 year history. You got it? Hershey. Today, women make up 42% of the Pennsylvania-based businesses board. By 2025, aims to increase the percentage of women working in its workforce to 50% and in its leadership population to 42%. That's up from currently 48 and 37% respectively. To reach its goals, Hershey launched a five-year plan called Project Pathways, and it's to help its workplace and communities become more inclusive. And the project is run by collaboration of human resources and the Women's Business Resource Group and provides their teams with resources such as childcare, transportation, tutoring and elder care resources. Another firm to meet the top 10 was Zoom, the video communications team. Chief People Officer Lynn Oldham said that the Silicon Valley tech company had redesigned its recruiting and hiring strategies, diversifying its pipelines, revising job descriptions that they feature inclusive language and introduce uniformity across its interviewing process in an effort to reduce bias and increase the number of female hires. Zoom has also sought to support women through partnerships with charities such as If Chloe Can, a UK organisation that hosts workshops and connects teens with mentors to prepare them for the workforce. When amid stay-at-home orders were unable to continue with its usual impersonal operations, Zoom stepped in, offering to facilitate their programming through its services free of charge. And there are many other organisations who are demonstrating great diversity, equity and inclusion principles when it comes to hiring female employees in their workforce. If you want to get a full list, go to Forbes 
and looked for the world's top female-friendly companies. And Statista surveyed over 85,000 women in 40 countries to create this great report. That's been Leadership Hacker News. Please let us know what you'd like us to feature in the news on our Leadership Hacker podcast. Colin Hunter is a special guest on today's show. He's an author of Be More Wrong. He's a mentor, entrepreneur, coach, and the CEO of Potential Squared International. Colin, welcome to the show. Oh, Steve, it's a pleasure, real pleasure. So how you been? Oh, yeah, we're good. Um, life is, and I hate to say this sometimes nowadays, but life is good. It's busy. We've got a new startup business, um, which we're, we're working on at the moment. And yeah, we've got a lot of things, but I'm struggling to deal with sometimes with this new hybrid world. I'm sure everybody out there is, but uh, I'm starting to work with new norms. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. We've tried to have lunch for six months and we're like ships that pass in the night when it comes to London these days because we're in that hybrid world, right? And I'm sure it's nothing personal. It's nothing personal from my side, I'm sure. It's of course, likewise. <laughs> yeah. So Colin, for, for the listeners that haven't had the opportunity to meet with you, just give us a little bit about the backstory and how Potential Squared came about. Yeah, so if if I go back, so I've been uh, in leadership since whoa, 1996. But before that, if I go back, I was uh, brought up in Newcastle, uh, northeast of England. Father was a pediatric cardiologist. And there's a part of me that's telling you this because there's a, a story that I grew up with him being a, um, working on uh, looking at ultrasound for babies' hearts and was an amazing doctor, which saved many people's lives. And I had a grandfather who was a professor of theology. So my early part of my life was spent wondering how the hell do I actually compete and match up to my father and my grandfather. So I spent most of that time working, trying to be somebody I'm not. And then around about 30, 31, um, I had a moment, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which uh, redefined my career. And since then, I've been working in the form of leadership consultant, working on leadership, looking at leaders and how they they work. And more latterly, I've started to recraft my career and our business around creating playgrounds to disrupt the way people are led. I started to realize I wanted to have some fun, Steve. I wanted to to play with our work. I started to want to experiment. And and since 2007, I've, I've set it out whether it's about use of actors or vr virtual reality i've started to look at how we do immersive but real experiential workshops and training for leaders to shift the way and disrupt the way they think about leadership um, and that is where i am now and i'm still experimenting still learning but but still suffering a bit from what i went through up to the age of 30 and, uh, and how that's impacted my career yeah yeah you comfortable? Let's go in there yeah, before we it. talk about that time, because yeah, yeah. I think it's a really important lesson for many people listening to this story, because it really defined who you were at that time, but also how you ended up where you are now. Mm-hmm. So tell us about what happened, that defining moment you called it. Yeah, so I spent my childhood exploring, experimenting, having loads of groups of friends, and uh, I loved my life. I was out, I was, you know, my mother and father used to say there was you know, many forms of communication, but one was go tell Colin, yeah, and he would go tell somebody else, and and then I'd have conversations, I start up conversations. So I, I spent up to probably the age, age of seventeen, loving my friends, my life, and, and even despite school, enjoying the rest of what I was trying to do. But but in the background, my father being what he was, and my grandfather being a professor of theology. And, and, you know, I was known as A.M. Hunter's grandson for most of my earlier part. He was a, a, an author and a writer in the New, New Testament. And therefore, I spent my life wondering whether I would 
what I would do to, to reach the, the levels that they'd got to. That happened at quite an early age for you as well, didn't it? That, that awareness of who you were and the indeed unconscious pressure that you felt from that happened at quite an early age, right? It did. I mean, if I go back to when I was 11, my grandfather sat me down and said, uh, for those who know Robbie Burns, Robert Burns, the poet, he said, Tamashanta, I want you to, to be able to learn this and recite Tamashanta. Um, and I want you to do this over Christmas and I want you to learn. And, and so therefore I started to learn. I realized I couldn't, firstly, I couldn't learn it by road. Secondly, I didn't know why I was doing it. And thirdly, there seemed to be some sort of test that I was, was going through. And I, and I don't criticize my grandfather for it. He was, he was a, an academic. He was, he was looking for me to show that I could be logical um, and that I could work in a, a principle in a way that could have constructed arguments in, a, in the right way. All I cared about was, was relationships and emotions. And <laughs> I was in that space going, you know, I, I was sat at his feet and I, I looked up at him and I thought, wow, this man is great. But I in no way could could live and breathe what he was doing. He was just brilliant at constructing an argument. And I felt out of my depth. So that was at the age of 11 and 12. And then my father was in that space and he was you know, working in ultrasound when the first looking at how they diagnose in the baby's hearts. So I used to go in and see him in the hospitals, saving babies' lives and their tiny, small babies and how he had this care, but this ability to teach others and I thought this I, I can't do this either so so therefore I thought should I be a doctor <laughs> should I be an academic should I stretch myself and therefore I always looked at others uh, from an early stage with a degree of imposter syndrome and said I'm not worthy hmm. um, and I, I wouldn't call it in those days but what it meant was I searched out areas that I could play in but they met, tended to be away from my family they tended to be away um, from those areas of logic and academia. And therefore, therefore I fought school. I fought, at a, and lit, in some ways, literally, I had a you know, major argument with one of my teachers who suggested at the age of 17, I leave school and go and get a, just a, a, a job in retail because that's all I would a, a achieve in my life. Um, so, so therefore, when it comes to how I started off my career, I took everybody's advice. I joined and became a tax consultant. Um, and I spent my life sat in a cubicle doing handwritten computations of tax and wondered why I wasn't happy. And then so I went to Procter and Gamble and had a great career there, but I was doing a job where I hated it. I mean, I was successful, but the cost of my energy in that, that role was huge. So I ended up, um, I ended up having a breakdown basically at the age of 30 where I, um, I, I went back up to my parents' uh, house in Newcastle in the northeast of England from Nottingham, um, and I spent two weeks in tears. Um, and I'm happy to talk about it now, and for many years I wasn't. Mm. But uh, it, was, it was this clash where I was walking in a house where my father only cried once that I can remember when our dog died, and therefore I walked into the house and I was crying. Um, and it, it was almost like they knew how to deal with it, but they didn't know how to deal with it. So how were you received by them at that time? Because I suspect having that strong veneer of professional academia and success mm. doesn't come with showing much vulnerability. So how did that play out? I was lucky in that he was a doctor. And I, I you know, bless him, he passed away earlier this year and I've done a lot of soul searching on this. And and he, he dealt with it in, in the way he knew, which is he suggested that, that I go see the doctor, our local GP. 
uh, general practitioner. And so therefore it was almost, it wasn't a case of that they weren't unsympathetic, but they were looking for uh, a cure for it. My mother has latterly suffered from uh, mental health issues herself, and therefore there's more understanding in that space from their side. Um, but I was lucky they sent me to, to Gusta Silva, a GP, um, and he cancelled the appointments ahead of me um, and after me. And he sat down and he, and he did this brilliant thing, Steve. He did a, He told me the story of when he was in a car accident and how this car had flipped over. And he remembered the in slow motion, the car sliding along on its roof. And he remembered the music going slowly on the radio. But he saw his life flash in front of him. And he just he said something to which has always stayed with me. He said, um, I had a gift then to learn about my life and what I needed to change. And he said, you've been given a gift. Might not seem it at the moment, but you've given a gift that life is about energy systems. And your energy is at zero, basically. And your your mind is telling you you can't cope with it. And now is the time to, to think about your energy systems that feed your life and how you use them and be much more intentional about how you feed them and how you spend them in your life. And that was the most powerful thing somebody's ever said to me in my life and has changed the way I work now. When you look back on that time, do you see that as a gift now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. When I was writing the book and I was thinking about it, um, I suddenly realized I had never gone back to see Gustav Silva. I'm not even sure if he's alive now and I, and I feel guilty about that um, because that was a transformational piece um, for me but I also think it's it's taught me if I look now and how I'm bringing up my daughters who are 17 or 16 it's taught me to to realize that 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 real connection with them is so so, so important but but as a leader it's taught me so much more I indeed. And one of the things that astounds me about you Colin is you are incredibly successful mm. incredibly well presented, strong, courageous leader as I see you today, but you still suffer with this mm. nagging imposter syndrome from time to time. Mm. And and I, and I know that of you, but how do you deal with that? I, I think the first thing is sharing it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was doing a keynote last night and to an American audience, and these are all the top, these are all my competitors, the learning and development uh, professionals globally. We meet each year at this conference. And I was sharing in this webinar with them uh, this story, and, and I said about the imposter syndrome. And what was amazing for me is that how many people suddenly started to share that they had the same thing. So I used to walk into this place, and Center for Creative Leadership, Vital Smarts, Crucial Conversations, and just feel I wasn't worthy. But so many people in that same space have those same feelings. And so therefore... By telling that story, and I think this is where the, the, the humility and the, the humble nature of leaders, if you tell your story of where you have struggled, it's amazing how many people suddenly go, yeah, I'm in the same way. Yeah. And that's that's what's happening now. But there's other things I'm doing positively to work on, but sharing the story has been one of the biggest first steps. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I think just having the label imposter syndrome, which you know wasn't there sort of 10 years ago, mm. it helps us to actually recognize that it's a thing and that we can actually deal with it. Whereas yeah. before we might have dealt with it as something else. Mm. I think the senior leaders, if you, and you and I work in this space, we work with senior leaders. I'm amazed how many of the senior leaders have imposter syndrome, one version or another. Mm. You know, wondering how the hell they got to the top of the organization. Secondly, wondering how the hell they're going to lead this organization because 
whether it's intellect or whether I was chatting to a client friend the other day and he's he's been dyslexic diagnosed uh, probably later in his life but he's been very very successful in his career but he's always worried that somebody's going to find him out however he's used that positively because he leads with a humble nature because of that it's been a powerful piece and I think that's what a lot of people need to hear about the imposter syndrome is it starts you from a humility and a humble space, which is a powerful place as a leader to start, rather than an arrogance and a belief in your own power and ability. That can be worked on. But listening to that voice in your head, not not uh, removing it, but it's a bit, sometimes I describe this as it's the loudest voice at a dinner party. Yeah. Yeah. And all you've got to do is dial it down and dial up the other voices in your head and the other neural pathways that allow you to be successful. Yeah. yeah, it's great words. I often use the same analogy, but help people to think about it. it's the one voice you wake up with in the morning. Yeah. It's the one that you go to bed with, and it'd be the last voice you hear before you die. <laughs> so it needs to serve you well. It does. It does. And I, I think that's where I also my meditation headspace in the morning and my exercise in the morning is is a powerful piece for me. Yeah. I, I find my inspiration in just, as Jamie Smart, who wrote the book Clarity, said, when you fall out of your thinking, it allows you to come up with inspired action. And I, I find that nearly every mm. morning I'm doing my headspace and something pops into my head and it's just, oh, yeah, that's the answer. That's the answer. But how often do we do that? Thanks for sharing that story, Colin. I think it's really important to help people understand you actually as a character because you are incredibly successful now and you're running a successful business with potential squared and I think it just gives people some insights that you know we all come from different perspectives to arrive at where we've arrived at and that journey is really important isn't it it's it's massive yeah hero's journey as they say yeah yeah so tell us a little bit about the work that you and the team are doing at potential squared at the moment Oh, we, we're, we're having fun. And I think that's a, a key um, sense. Although some people at the moment, because we're in a startup in one area of business. Um, and that's anybody who's been involved in a startup will say it's fun, but at the time it doesn't feel like it's fun quite a bit of the time. But um, so we're, we're doing a couple of things. One is we are restlessly dissatisfied about our work. So we've got our P2 leadership side of the business, which is leadership development and working. We've got VR, we've got virtual reality in there. We've got the use of the actors, which is a powerful piece and always gets the most uh, positive feedback about the work we do, bringing in actors to explore conversations, getting people to have a almost a, a whose line is it anyway, if you remember the comedy program. I do, yeah. Uh, interaction. And we find that that immersive experience of getting them into the conversations of leadership is the same as now as the VR is allowing us to do, where people are in the headsets, they're in this virtual reality, and and they suddenly find that they're being themselves. You know, their true behaviors are coming out. So we're doing a lot of good work in there, but but there's there's always been something missing uh, from that work, and so therefore our new project is something called the Five Hundred, where we're looking at saying so. Biggest challenges in this world at the moment is is equity, you know, increasing equity for people when they're young in terms of moving up in their careers. And if you look at where organizations are facing challenges at the moment, it's finding new talent. They're all fighting for talent in the same pools. Um, it's costing them more. Most of them can't afford that extra cost. And then we've suddenly realized that we're probably only tapping into 25% of the talent pool. And the other 75% is, is sat in places either 
places where they've had a, a very difficult background. Um, so they've had a life story that you know, I wouldn't recognize, even despite my stories I'm telling. Mine is trivial in some ways compared to what others are experiencing. And therefore, they've got neurodiversity um, side to that, where they're challenged by that. So we're, we're doing some work to say, so how do we train leaders and, and develop leaders to think with a wider view of life, to, to explore into different areas of the community, explore into different areas of society and have a, a wider vision uh, for that, which benefits a couple of things, Steve, which I'm really, I'd never really thought about before. One is design thinking. Yeah. You look at Procter & Gamble, you look at all the different types of organizations that I used to work for, and you look at how they are trying to design for the different uh, needs of different people, and whether it's disability or whether it's neurodiversity or whether it's age or gender, all of these things need to come into play. But then you've got this talent pool where suddenly people are, are realizing that uh, you know, in that neurodiversity pool, you've got some of the brilliant thinkers and there's some brilliant ideas people so how do we tap into that but you've also got these people who they come from they come from those places that you're trying to sell your products into so why wouldn't you tap into that um but the third thing and i think the most important thing for me is that if you look at where most leaders are now and particularly with the pandemic as it's hit most people are thinking how do i give something back how do i tap back into society how do i do some good uh, for the wider population. And, and I see so many people who are willing to spend their own money to go and do something for others. Um, and this new project works along those lines. So that's what we're working on at the moment to to get people into a wider space. Sounds a fun. Wider vision. It is, it's great. Yeah. And when it comes to your work, one of the things mm. I particularly like about what you do is you, and you, you called it at the beginning of the show, actually, you have these what you call playgrounds that you create to really tap into helping people unlock different behaviors from your experience by just having the notion of creating playgrounds what behavior does that then unlock i think it's well there's two things you can't tell people to have fun <laughs> you know they all say well go have fun that's right yeah it doesn't happen it doesn't, just doesn't happen but if you think about some of the best times you've had it's it's that stepping out of where you are now, stepping out of the front door. And for some people, playgrounds is going off into the wilds and just taking some time by itself. Scotland, for me, has been through the pandemic because looking after my father at the time has allowed me to go on these coastal walks and experience nature. And that's a playground for me. I get inspired and get some great thoughts. For others, it's I had an old colleague who used to work when they were doing the Marks and Spencer turnaround. His idea was working, you know, 14, 15 hour days doing the night shift in, in the Marble Arch store of Master Spencer. And his playground was discovering new ways of working. But the idea in my head was, how do we create a place where um, it makes people think they're going to have fun? They're stretching themselves. But it's almost like they've got a safe place with a soft landing if they fail to try something different. Rather than sailing their ship around the harbour, as we describe it, uh, and doing the same thing safely all the time, why not seek rougher seas? Why not get you know, barnacles on your butters, as I describe it, and go and stretch yourself? <laughs> but if it's in a playground where the, the the highest risk is that you might get it wrong and somebody's going to give you feedback, you're going to learn, why don't we do that? And just take a simple thing like having a, a conversation now about race, skin colour, diversity. 
wouldn't it be great to have a safe place to allow people to have conversations to learn and grow? But as soon as you say something wrong, you're, you're hammered for it. So that's what we're talking about, playgrounds, safe places to land where people can explore. Yeah, it's a great metaphor and, and a reality as well, I guess, mm. if you allow yourself to think that way. Yeah. Yeah. And did that help you then start to think about using that notion to write your book, Be More Wrong? Was that kind of a, a trigger that led you that way? Yeah. It's ironic that the title is Be More Wrong, and it took four years for me to be comfortable to publish it. So let's talk about that, because actually, I, I recall when we had a conversation about this before, the whole notion of calling a book Be More Wrong is an oxymoron for most people, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and it, the title was um, probably the first thing I put down because I was I was starting to think, so I've had so many screw-ups in my life, but I'm still here and being successful. So surely there's something rich in this. But I think the biggest thing that helped me was in writing the book was I was uh, introduced to IDEO through a Canadian company experience point where the whole principle of failing early, failing fast, and learning fast was introduced to me. And I started to think that all the work we do is around that. So to write the book, I suddenly realized we need to find, and using the hero's journey metaphor, stepping out of the, your house, going on a journey, gathering your team together, and gathering your followers together, having an inspiring story, a quest, a purpose, going and failing, facing good and evil, and failing and succeeding in equal measure, but learning and having a guide to do that was what we'd be doing for years. And actually, the only bit that was missing was this design thinking piece, which is getting out there and experiencing and having a go at something, observing people in the real world. Um, so therefore, the be more wrong philosophy is embedded in that fail fast, learn fast philosophy. Yeah. Um, and gave it the, the, the juice for the book, yeah. And of course, if you reframe being wrong and failing to actually that's a learning experience, it helps you to grow from it, doesn't it? It, it does. I mean, if, it is fascinating in our culture that one, one failure makes somebody a bad person, whereas actually if you look um, in many different aspects of our life, these failures are, are learning and they are spaces where people can start to, to, to work on different ways of living. I still am a big fan of Mandela and the, um, you know, the, the, the sessions he had, the conversations he had after apartheid. And he didn't, he didn't let it go. He brought those people who had you know, diminished the, the, the rights of people to understand and work on so you could learn. And there's a classic example of, of a mistake, a failure in many people's eyes that had to be learned from rather than just finishing it and getting on. We had to learn from that. And, and some cases, some days I actually feel that we haven't learned enough from those times or those mistakes. And therefore, how do we create that environment to do it more? Yeah. Do you think that's a lot to do with mindset and how people have perceived the event? So if you take Mandela as a perfect example, right, yeah. this is a guy who was imprisoned in Robin Island for decades who could have been really bitter, twisted and angry. And the people that had imprisoned him, he then subsequently taught, educated and encouraged to think differently. Hmm. And that's got to be down to mindset and other behaviours. What's your experience of that? I think it is. I think it is mindset. and uh, But I, I think it's a gift of mindset because I think if he hadn't had that experience, that's a tough experience, um, and he hadn't had the time to reflect and be really, really clear. And, and he was very intentional about his learning from that. And he was very intentional about how he treated people around him 
even his wife in terms of how he, he works in there. And I think there's leaders who, you know, they, they almost celebrate failures in the workplace as learning pieces, as long as there's learning and there's moving forward. Yeah. yeah. That is a mindset. But one thing you said there specifically, Colin, I think was also being intentional. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think purposeful practice is a classic piece, you know, and I'm not a sportsman, but I love my sport. And when you look at all the workers in here, there's having a purpose towards something, whether it's being a top tennis player or competing at a particular level. And then there's purposeful practice, intentional practice of small, small things that can be. So what we call practices. So how do I make a practice to become a habit habitual that feeds a system that makes me successful? And Brailsford with the sky cycling now in your and did it, he did it with British Cycling. Now, there's critics always of these things, but if you look now in all sports, soccer, you look at American football, the small incremental gains that people are making, intentional failure towards something stress testing, working yeah. is exactly what this is about. Yeah, Exactly right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And ironically, purpose is one of your three enablers of leadership. So you have purpose, identity, and presence. And I thought it'd be useful just to kick that about. Yeah, and again, it's funny when you put something out there and Simon Sinek put his, his work on purpose out there, his, you know, his TED Talk, which has been watched by many people, and, and I loved it. And then you look at other people like uh, Tom Peters, who said, well, purpose, it's great to say you can just find it, but a lot of us don't find our purpose immediately. We stumble across it. Um, but there is an intentionality about what motivates me. What's, what, are, what is my passion? What do I want to do? And even when somebody says, well, my purpose is to be a good father or a good mother, there's that question afterwards, which, what type of uh, father or mother do you want to be? And so, for example, if I take the purpose and identity for me, my purpose is to create playgrounds to disrupt the way people are led. That's the mantra that I've worked on to, to, to do that. But my identity I also have and I hold is a, a father of daughters. So my whole being and the identity of father of daughters is to start to think about how I disrupt the way that people lead and recruit and give opportunities so that women and my daughters have equal opportunities in the, in the future. And therefore, my purpose and identity then every day when I'm looking at things, not only for, for gender, but for race, and everything, I'm starting to say, so how do I be more, how do I get more equity in society from that? So that purpose and identity. Now, for most people, it's a tough one to establish your purpose. And that's why we do a lot of work on stories, getting people to tell their stories and working out their stories. Once you listen to your stories and you realize how you crafted your life, what you've hated and what you've loved, you normally can find an underlying purpose that you can work on. But it's an experiment. It might work. It might be rejected. And then you move on to the next one. So purpose and identity and the identity piece, I, I love this, which is, do I cycle or am I cyclist? Mm. That's uh, the classic piece. And if I'm a cyclist, I suddenly take it professionally and I take it with great importance. So if I'm a father of daughters, I've suddenly put an identity I need to work at and be proud of. So those are two elements we've got. But I think the, the, the bit that I love the most is the presence piece that we have in there, which if you think about it, we... We have to learn to dance to the music as a leader. We need to be agile. We need to, we're on a crazy train through the pandemic and we're on an even crazier train next year. So how do I dance to that music? 
But the, the piece I love is why not dance to other people's music and learning to do that? So rather than bringing the music I would have as a leader, how do I learn to be agile in the moment with other people's music and be able to adapt and, and move to that, that music? And therefore, we do a lot of work around gravitas, prominence, executive presence, and teaching people from an early age how to have more impact in the vocal, physical, um, and also mental in terms of how they come across. So those are the three the three things purpose why we do stuff then to be how we do it and then the presence is how we show up yeah. i love it yeah really simple but actually they're all aligned aren't they yeah yeah if you get one of them wrong it has a knock-on effect like all systems on the other ones yeah and so. coming back to your identity piece that kind of sits in the middle because it gives permission i suppose to delve into purpose and also permission to how you show up mm. and we, we can change that identity by just shifting a label that we wear right yeah I'd, I'd love that. I mean, it's it's a bit tonight, Matthew, for those, you know, there's a program in the UK where right. people go on and say, tonight, Matthew, I am going to be. But actually, with the use of the actors has given me a lot of work to say, how do I adopt an identity? And how do I live and breathe it? And how do I learn to be authentic in that new version? And I think that's one of my other biggest challenges to people is authenticity is, is normally given as excuse by somebody who say, well, this is how I am. I'm not going to change. But authenticity, and Herminia Barra at London Business School says this, authenticity is something that adapts and addresses different circumstances you face. And therefore, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be this to try and, and develop something that's going to be my future identity and my authenticity. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much so. Mm. So one of the other things I've seen about the work that you've had is that you're not afraid to challenge some of the traditional status quo of how we perceive leadership mm -hmm. and leadership styles has been written about and quoted about for many years in different guises, but you've reframed some of those mm -hmm. and you have your own full leadership styles now. And I wonder if you could share those with our listeners. Yeah, and I, I love this because it fits into the hero's journey. So whether you're a Lord of the Rings fan or everything else that goes in a Harry Potter, who are, whatever your choices. Uh, in there. There's a piece in here that uh, we talk about leaders need followers, followers need leaders. So the first system is, is we describe is how do I get uh, engaged connections? How do I get followers to follow me? And how do I be impactful in that? And we call this the host. So if you imagine a host at a dinner party or a host in terms of uh, relationships, most of us only worry about our relationships, our networks, our teams, when either we've lost a job or we need to recruit we need to hire and we don't pay attention to them. So there's the first one is about how I create psychological safety and how I create real difference, diversity, inclusion in my network so that I'm not sitting in an echo chamber listening to my own thoughts. So that's the first one, the host. So if you think about Frodo and Sam and a dwarf and an elf and an Aragorn, there was real diversity and different thinking and different views that came to them. And once you've got your followerships and you've got your host and you've got your team together, then the second system is the energizer or the, what I call uh, inspired energy in there, which is how clear is your story? How clear are your inspiring stories that allow other people to see a part in your story as the leader? And therefore, we talk around a lot around storytelling. We talk a lot about points of view around how we work. And crafting that story and crafting the future story you've got is important in there. But the other part of energy is personal drive. So how resilient are you? How anti-fragile? And a lot of my work at the moment, particularly in the pandemic, is about coaching people to be more resilient, 
to be put systems, whether it's meditation, fitness, diet, breath, other works in there to be, to have the energy to by osmosis, give it to your team, but also spend it on the right things. So that's the energizer. And then the third area is disruptor. And this was given to me by IDEO, but how do I get fresh ideas through experimentation? But also how do I get ruthless and narrowing uh, choices in there? So we always believe that 80% of your experiments will fail, 20% will be successful. So every day I'm thinking, what are the two to three experiments I'm going to start running that could succeed, could fail, but as long as they're feeding the system of fresh ideas, we're going to run on the team. And then when you think about Gandalf, you think about Dumbledore, there's always a guide. So as a leader, how strong is your mentoring and coaching and growth of capabilities? So the final uh, style we talk about is catalyst. So as a mentor, having points of view and, and almost lighting fires under backsides for people to get them in the right direction, giving them points of view and direction. And then the coaching, which is lighting fires in their bellies by coaching and spending time. So host, energizer, disruptor, and then the catalyst of the four styles that we use. Great. I love the descriptive nature of them as well and brings it to, to life for folk listening to this, hopefully, too. It's mm, good. I love it. Next part of our show, Colin, we get mm. to turn our leadership focus and hack into your leadership mind, which has enormous experience, not only of leading the businesses you've led, but also having worked with some of the best leaders around the world. So first place I'd like us to go is to tap into your top three leadership hacks. So the first one is pay it forward. So I was given a gift by a gentleman called Mike Taylor. Uh, and this is about network. I've, I've, for the last probably seven, eight years, I've practiced a principle and a hack for as a leader, which is I work my network, not wondering what I can get out of them, but by thinking about what is the, what are the three things I can do for people that I have connections with. So I very rarely say no to a connection, very rarely. And I go and I think, so I'm going to a, a great uh, club that um, celebrates massive mistakes in life. And it's called the Cock Up Club in the, uh, London. I've never been to it, but I was got an invite. And it's about leaders who go in and celebrate that. But I'm already going into that, that uh, meeting by saying, so what are the three things that I can give to people I meet in there that night? Well, what are the three things that I take? So that's my first leadership hack. The second thing is a very simple one. I don't know if you've ever heard of Churchill's prayers, but during the war, Churchill did something very simple with all his leaders every day. He got them together for a very short space of time. We now call a pulse, a daily pulse. And in that daily pulse, we talk about what did I do yesterday? What am I doing today? And what am I doing tomorrow? And we started to do that in our business. And it gives a really clear idea of what people, firstly, what people are working on, what gaps we have. But it's amazing how we identify resource issues and work in there. So it's a very simple hack um, to give people is to put that into 9.50 in the morning till 9.45 each day. We meet as a team for half an hour. We do that. And it's, it's a breath of fresh air in terms of communication. Final hack is, I was going to put something down here, but I'm going to change it down. It was one given to me by an ex-Special Forces uh, gentleman, and he talked about brief back, check back. Mm. And, and brief back, check back is, is one of the most, it's the most simple thing in some ways, but we avoid it. So once I've given a brief to somebody, and I've said, this is what I'm expecting, this is the project, we very rarely ask the question, 
which is what we tend to ask the question, is that clear? And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that's fine, go away. But what we tend to not do is ask the question, so repeat back to me, please, if you could, exactly what you heard. And in that brief back, it's amazing how often the, the articulation of the idea is different from the receiver than it was from the giver. So that's the first bit. What that allows you to do is correct any miscommunication or misguidance of the expectations you've given. But it also allows you with confidence for them to go off and just allow yourself to check back in. So it's a core part of empowering people and, and giving people accountability in there. So that's the final one. Love that last one. And we've had a couple of major generals on actually. So this is rooted mm. in this is this has come up in the conversations we've had with them too, mm. because it's rooted in when you're about to send somebody off to war, yeah. Asking somebody if it's clear is just not enough. No. Asking somebody if they really get it and understand it is absolutely essential. Great hack. Next part of the show, we call it hack to attack. So this is where your be more wrong principle starts to play in really well. So this is typically where something in your life and your work hasn't worked out at all well. But there is a real learning experience from there. You shared one that was a pivotal moment for you. But what would be another hack to attack? So the, the hack for me is the need for a business partner. <laughs> I've spent most of my life, and it's probably related to the imposter syndrome, worried that if I didn't have a business partner, my business would not be uh, successful because my, my level of capability and intellect and decision-making was not enough to drive it. So, you know, I've had probably more business partners than I would care to admit, but that, when I look back, it, it gave me an insight that what I needed was less of a business partner and more of an advisory board. Um, and so I took on an advisory board uh, in the last two to three years, three people, different skills, one in innovation and design, the other person more on the sales side. And the third one tended to be around more the strategic direction. And what I suddenly realized by getting their noses into our business, but in most cases, fingers out, you know, as a, an advisory board, I had all the benefits of a business partner without needing to end a relationship at a certain point. They could do that. And that's been my amazing hack to attack that I've deployed. And now we're seeing it as a proving ground, a playground for some of our advisors that have never done advisory board roles before, never been done execs. So they get to play and practice with us before they go on to bigger and better things afterwards. So that's my hack to attack. That's a great hack to attack because what I'm hearing is exactly that, a non-executive director role who provides you with their counsel and direction. But then there's not that awkward, oh, you know, this isn't working out for us and we have to tie, you know, equity stakes and all the mess that comes with partnerships. Exactly. Yeah. Great. We hack. pay them. <laughs> but, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the advantage, I guess, in doing so still is that when that time has served and the mutual mm. value has got to its natural kind of capacity, you can switch them in and switch them out as the business starts to pivot and change directions as well. Yeah, and it's interesting. On the, the latest business venture for the 500, we started to think that the advisory board we're going to have for that is I've got a contact who runs a business mentoring ex-convicts coming out of prison. Um, and I'm starting to think, so that would be a great person to have in his advisory board member and maybe somebody at the neurodiversity area. So you can play with this in a, in a good way to get different voices into your head and different points of view. So it's a great, it's a great process. Definitely, yeah. So the last part of the show, Colin, you get an opportunity to go back and bump into Colin at 21, face-to-face, toe-to-toe, and give him some advice. What would your advice to Colin be at 21? 
It's interesting because I, I struggle with this uh, 21 because I look back to 21 and I struggle to, to work out what it is. And I had, I had one thing that goes through my mind, which I sort of mentioned before, but it's, I would say to, to him and say to Colin, I say, go find your own music to dance to. Yeah. yeah. Find out what the music is that you want to dance to and then go dance with it. But also find other people whose music interests you to go dance with. And I keep the key thing here, and I think Amazon Web Services have this as one of their core values, which is natural curiosity. Be curious enough to explore other people's music as well and find out what you like and go with it. Super stuff. So, Colin, for folk listening to this, wanting to get a copy of Be More Wrong or learn a bit more about the business that you lead and the work that you do, where's the best place for us to send them? So, Be More Wrong, um, at Be More Wrong on Instagram. Uh, I'd be more wrong on Twitter. Uh, website is be more wrong. So you can .com, go explore that. For the business itself, potential two, potential in the figure two.com and go find out more about that. I'd love to, to, to connect with any of the listeners and uh, explore more with you, but they can, they can find out more information and connect with us there. And they'll be able to jump into the show notes and find all of that information in there as well. Lovely. Colin, I've loved chatting and always do and wanted to say thank you ever so much for being vulnerable sharing your stories and being part of our community on the leadership hacker podcast it's been a pleasure steve looking forward to that lunch when we can finally get it indeed (laughs) yeah exactly thanks colin cheers i genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too we do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership without you listening in there would be no show So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.